Welcome back to Gathering, Startwell's podcast that is all about how people support teams. Uh, we're going to take a little kind of side angle on this. Uh, there's lots of ways to, to pull in that theme with this episode. This is episode 10 of the podcast series. Today, I'm in studio with Swish Goswami. Yep. And he is the CEO and founder? Co-founder. Co-founder. Yep. Yep. He is the CEO and one of the co-founders yeah. of Surf. Which you can find on the web at joinsurf.com. Correct. Why did that stay in my head? <laughs> Good domain name. Our advertising is working. <laughs> it's not like get surfing nope. or nope. It's wow. join. <laughs> join surf. Swish, it's awesome to have you in the Thank studio. You. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, so let's just clear this up. So you you told me, am I right, that surf is essentially a browser extension that rewards you for browsing the interwebs? Correct. Uh, okay, what does that mean, man? Yeah, so... How do you get rewarded? <laughs> and and it, it are certain things... Uh, do you get rewarded for more things than others? Yeah, no, great questions. Don't um, look at porn all day. You won't be yeah. rewarded. Actually, <laughs> we double your points. Yeah, okay. uh, for the last 10 to 15 years, you know, we've been giving our data to Amazon, to Facebook, to Google, for all these companies for free, right? So we felt, why not build a system where you get something out of it, where instead of just giving your permission to be tracked and to share your data, you actually get something back. We give people points. They can use the points in our marketplace for items, for gift cards, for exclusive discounts that you can't find on Honey, giveaways that you can enter into with your points. You can donate your points to charity. There's a lot you can essentially do with your points. Um, we tried as much as possible, though, to make it incredibly passive. So we don't want you to go to specific websites. We don't want you to click specific links. We don't want you to watch ads or take surveys. The goal is just browse like you normally do. And you, as long as you're sharing data, you will get rewarded. And we looked at the average amount of time people browse the internet for. It's about two hours per day. And we're rewarding people based on that on like an earning system that is capped out weekly and monthly. So is the data that they're sharing with you mm -hmm. and potentially advertisers mm -hmm. uh, anonymized? Yep, all anonymized. When a user signs up, they don't even provide their first and last name to us. Okay. We don't ask for that information. We don't ask for any personally identifiable info. And then we ask for things like age, gender, location, just to be able to get high-level demographic data so we know where to bucket you when we share data with companies. But we do one more scrub even before we share data to make sure that there's no you know, PII that slipped into your data, no email, no address maybe that might compromise your personal identity. And sorry, so... The, you haven't been hacked by Chinese, like... Yeah, not yet. Not Chinese, yet. you know, mobile, yeah. those farms where they have, like, no. 5,000 phones that all have, like, I know. fake I know. IDs. I know. Stuff. Thank God. Thank God. I'm hopefully after this podcast, it doesn't happen. <laughs> that would be terrible if it did. Uh, but no, for now, we've been fine. And, you know, we have a pretty incredible team. Like, my CTO, his entire background is within network security. He okay. sold two companies before that. One was Pertino to Cradle Point that he built in the Bay Area. He has eight patents within the network security space, everything from mobile content and categorization to deep packet inspection he lives and breathes this hmm. so i think we built a really good team that you know we're now over 1.5 billion data points have been collected in the last eight months from how surf many, users how many data points are collected by each person by each person it really depends right that on sounds like on, on their browsing and by data point i mean you know the URLs that you go to, the videos you watch, the publications yeah, you actions. read, that is all actions or interactions. That's what we call it. And and that is a data point. That's what I mean by it. And so, you know, we are ingesting right now about 5.7 million interactions per day. And all of that data is being stored. 
uh, obviously because we want the ability for people also to delete that data if they ever want it, right? And so, you know, we are GDPR, CCPA compliant. We let people come to us and say, hey, you know, I want you to delete everything you know about me and we'll actually go through and actually do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a lot of companies say they will, but they actually don't because they don't know. Even, They're like, yeah, of course it's deleted. Yeah, we'll do it. Uh, we don't even know where it is, man. They don't even know what their data infrastructure is, sure. let alone like how to go about actually extracting that individual person's data. We know how to be able to do that because we built our entire system from the ground up with that in mind. So that's another you know key benefit of, of having this sort of system. People are so scared when it, you, you approach the uh, topic of kind of data, oh, yeah. data sovereignty. Oh, yeah. But uh, but like at the same time, everyone's so forgetful and 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 um, oblivious to what their history online is, mm-hmm. you know. And and it's interesting because there's not many companies that kind of like yes, create value out of like yep. data, yep. but also do it in a way that's like interactive and fun. Yep. I have not seen anyone. I might just be like yeah, ignorant. Yeah, but like they're. Yeah. I haven't seen anyone kind of spin it on his head. Like yeah. you know how many people I talk to these days who are not internet old schoolers, right? Like. Right. gray hair like me yeah. <laughs> uh, that don't know how to look up their history in their browser yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and they can't even conceive of like I'm like yeah you know I'm always like oh yeah I was looking at that like last Thursday at 3pm like I can remember yeah, you know? yeah. like I know I've, I can I can dig it up yeah uh, but people are like, I don't even know what the hell I was looking at. Cause I guess yeah. their brains get fried sometimes yeah. with the social media swipes. You it's know? way too much, way too much. But a lot of noise. That's fine. I mean, the beauty about surf is that we are trying to make things very easy for you to do. So one of the key things beyond even compensation, we very much focus on is transparency. So even like when you go through our terms of service, for example, like we have the long form version, but when people go through our onboarding form, we actually forced our lawyers to build a one paragraph statement that summarizes the terms of service. You have to like pay them quadruple. Literally, oh my god! Because they were like, "Wait, what? Do you, wait, whoa, whoa. Uh, this has never been done before." And I'm just yeah. like, "How has it never been done I before?" Can't be concise. Like, yeah, literally, I can't put down ten or six or seven bullet points that summarize what a thirteen-page document says. I mean, I had to do that in college. Right, right <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, Where'd you get your degree, lawyer? Yeah, so I, I don't get it. So we did that because we want people to know what they're signing up for, and right. we want people when they come in to know that we're not just trying to be another company that takes your data and monetizes it. We're trying to be a company that monetizes your data. It gives you something back, but more importantly, it's a data partner for you mm-hmm. that works with your interests, that wants you to be in control of your data. So if you want to go in and pause the extension, you can do that. If you want to go in and delete places you've gone to that you don't want to share information on, you can do that. If you want to blacklist websites, like never track me on these websites, you can do that as well. We're trying to put the control kind of back into your hands and then let you decide what you do and don't want to share if you want that ability. Yeah. So I'm an internet old schooler, but I'm also yeah. pretty ignorant. About, <laughs> I love that word, by the way. Right? Yeah. <laughs> about uh, about all the like the crazy stuff that's gone on recently, and I'm, I'm guessing some North American legislation to do with privacy tracking and cookies. Yep. Why does every single website on the sun ask me <sighs> I if agree. I want to agree to their cookie yeah, policy? Yeah. Well, it's GDPR. GDPR and and CCPA are the two most dominant form of regulation. What do those stand for? So GDPR actually is something domestic privacy regulation. I, I would imagine it's the G is probably something like gross or something. Mm-hmm. I don't even. And then CCPA is the California Protection Act. Um, So the cool thing about both privacy regulations is that they're essentially letting people, you know, go about their own day, but they're requiring companies to, you know, let people request their data, delete their data, download their data, and have to fully explicitly consent to sharing Mm -hmm. their data. And so this was where the, the, the whole Apple... 
thing came about? It, it came about a year and a half, actually, after GDPR oh, okay. came into effect. But they are very linked to each other, right? It's just everything is pushing towards a privacy-conscious world, mm-hmm. to world, towards a world where people will have the final say, right? And in that world, so many companies now have had to radically shift their strategy to be able to still collect data. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a crazy thing just to think that the majority of, you mentioned, you know, Google and these other collectors of, of data. Yep. The data drives the advertising, and the advertising is what pays for the infrastructure and the mm-hmm. whole internet. You know, mm-hmm. like, and, and mm-hmm. it's that whole thing of like, I don't know, who said that? If you're not a customer, you're the product. The product. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay, so this company is how old now? We're four and a half years old because we were previously called TrueFan, T R U F A N, which is something I started. Uh, when I was yet yeah, 20 years old and I literally wanted to build a product that helped brands find who their top fans on social media were. This was an influencer kind of yes. thing. Yeah, it was like a database. We had like a bunch of profiles, competitor profiles that you could come on and you could be like, hey, Reebok can look at Nike's top fans and figure out who those people were on Instagram and Twitter. You could look at your own top fans. We had a lot of filtering capabilities. So you could be like, you know, who in my audience on Instagram has the keyword vegan in their bio? Zero to 100,000 followers is in Toronto and is not verified. And it'll quickly take your 30,000 followers and boil it down to 40 in a matter of seconds. So we did a really good job building you know, a system that was easily easily filterable and easily summarized. But at the same time, we were heavily reliant on third-party APIs. We were heavily reliant on Instagram and Twitter to continue sure. to give us that sort of data. And again, where the world of privacy has gone really pushed us to have to focus on, okay, we can't be reliant on Instagram and Twitter. We need to build our own data set. You know, everybody else is trying to do it. Why don't we build it in the best way possible? you know, by compensating people for their data, which isn't something a lot of people were thinking about back in 2020, especially. Let's do that and figure out if we could get a head start on the zero party data problem. (laughs) Well, people don't even kind of look at that, that question of even um, their credit card processor, Mm -hmm. their credit card company as being a data tracker. Oh yeah. I mean, there are companies like Drop in Toronto, for example, too. Drop's a rewards app. Mr. Young Derek, Master Fung. Yeah, Derek Fung. Yes, indeed. I mean, I, candidly, I was a drop user uh, back in college, and I remember not really knowing what I was actually signing up for. And drop, I mean, they've done a lot of good things, but one of the things that I think they could definitely do a bit better at is being transparent with the users that they actually sell purchasing data through a separate company called Cartify. It's not maybe a separate company. It's a separate entity. It's a different name altogether. But a lot of people who are drop users have no clue what Cartify is. Yeah, drop. So drop. Uh, let's just spell it out. So drop. Am yeah. I correct in assuming that it is a? Well, you tell me. What is yeah. drop? It's a cashback program. So it's like a modern day Rakuten. You basically go buy something from Banana Republic, and you'll get drop points back. You play certain games. You can go on their mobile app, and you can you know do surveys, and you get drop points. And then with those points, you get really. But cool it's offers not a credit card. It's not a credit card though. But they do allow you to get more points when you link your credit card because they want to get access to your purchasing data. They want to know where you're buying stuff from so they can then go through Cartify and sell that to hedge funds and private equity firms that want to understand what 20 to 24-year-old males in Toronto are buying on the internet each week. Mm -hmm. week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is why Derek Fung's always on, you know, BNN or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know that much. I haven't followed, honestly, in the last year and a half what they've been up to. I think, you know, they've gotten up to, I think, 4 million downloads. They've done an incredible job, especially on mobile. Um, but again, I mean, Dr- Drop is 
you know, in some aspects, quite competitive with us as well, right? Because we're trying to be a rewards app that is fighting for a very different value set than they are. You know, I think for them, they're more focused on obviously just extracting purchasing data at whatever cost and then being able to then go and sell that. Again, in a way that I don't generally sometimes think is, is fully fair to the end consumer. And on our end, we're trying to make sure that a consumer first knows what they're signing up for, is actively going and, and you know agreeing to our terms, but more importantly, is actively getting onboarded mm-hmm. in terms of knowing here's the type of data we collect, here's what we do with it. And then once they kind of come into our ecosystem, we give them a ton of ways to be able to use the points they get in order for, to get value. And so it is a little bit different, but it is, you know, kind of complementary in some aspects too. Okay. So sorry, you yeah. said you started TrueFriend when you were 20? 20, yeah. Four and a half years ago. And yeah. somewhere in the mix, you wrote a book about being... Yes, I know. Oh my God. Yes. I started that book three years ago. So I got the book After deal. a year. After um, a year of building TrueFan, Kogan Page reached out over LinkedIn, which is the main platform that I, I kind of built an audience on, especially when I was in college. And they reached out and said, hey, you know, we know you're starting this business. You know, we're kind of a year and a half in now. We'd love for you to write a book about being a young entrepreneur. And like, you know, how do you think about managing a business while you were in school? Because I kind of was doing stuff in school as well in college before Where I dropped out. Where did you go out. to university? University of Toronto. Okay. And yeah. you dropped out? I dropped out of my second year. Uh, after my second year, sorry. Why did you drop out? Oh, man. There was so much that kind of went into that decision. I think one... I wanted to be a lawyer going into university. I debated a lot in high school. I was on the national team for Canada for three years, went to two world competitions. My brother is a lawyer currently, but he was also a world champion debater. And, you know, I a wanted... Ma- to- a-, a master debater. A master debater. <laughs> yeah, 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 the classic joke. <laughs> I'm a dad. Wait, that's not really colorful. But anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a, <laughs> it is a dad joke, though. It's but a dad joke. It's, it's you know... It's, it's not a, a dad joke for it, your kids. It's a cool it's dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... Uh, yeah, I wanted to be a lawyer. So I thought, hey, let me join this program, Peace, Conflict, and Justice Studies at the University of Toronto. And I kind of fell out of love of being a lawyer kind of six months into university. And I thought, hey, maybe entrepreneurship is what I want to try my hand at. You're lucky. Happened quick, right? Yeah. Oh, did it? Did, it, did you become a lawyer? No, no. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, no I, thought I, you, I thought you eventually figured it out. <laughs> I know many lawyers that uh, are, you know, senior partners. Yeah. Who are losing their hair. Yeah. They and earn tons of money, but they're stressed out. Stressed out, really. And that, that is the worst, is to be stressed out, especially in a job you do not want to do. And that's something I kind of realized six months in that I'm like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. So, you know, I made the active decision to try to build a business. In my first year, I tried building a company called Foodshare, which is why, oh, you know, what we were chatting about before the podcast about taking leftover and excess food was really something that resonated with me because that's what we tried to do with Foodshare. Mm. We tried to do it for college students. They could get access to leftover excess food from coffee stores, from restaurants, you know. We didn't really have much of a technical experience, which is probably what limited us because Mm -hmm. we weren't able to actually build a full-fledged product quick enough. Uh, But there is an incredible company in London called Olio, O-L-I-O, that's doing that idea. But again, this is just like the first foray I had into entrepreneurship, just thinking about problems that either I or my kind of friends were facing and saying, how can I go about solving them? So that was kind of the experience, by the way, long story short, of, you know, thinking of the idea for Surf back in the day called True Fan, and then obviously a year and a half in getting this opportunity to write a book and thinking, okay, what do I write about? Because I still felt like a beginner in so many aspects, and I still do, but it was cool to be able to write the book while I was also growing Surf at the same time, and then finally releasing it this year. Entrepreneurs are always beginners. It's about yeah. the entre of entrepreneurship. <laughs> You're always starting yeah. something, you know. Yeah. Every day is a new challenge. Yeah. Um, okay, so 
you get started, you write a book, you yeah. kind of like rethink some things and yeah. you get going with this company yeah. um, or re-get going with yeah. this company. Yeah. When uh, w- What's the story of, you know, how it became something other than yourself or yourself and your co-founder? Who is your co-founder? Sorry? My co-founder is Anna Claire. He was, uh, he's been an entrepreneur for a while. He was 15 years old when he built an app called Under the Radar. He went on Dragon's Den, got venture funding on the show, became the youngest Canadian to get venture funding on Dragon's Den. And the ring, the app he built was a ringtone app that only people under the age of 21 can hear. Is that a thing? That's yeah. a real thing? Yeah, because as you grow older, kind of the vibrations and frequencies that your ear can pick up are actually limited. Yeah. So he built something. So husbands can't hear their yeah. wives after <laughs> they're like 45. Literally. I think that was actually one of the jokes on the show. <laughs> but um, it, yeah, he built this app. It went viral. It was, I think it beat Angry Birds at one point, which is kind of crazy, in Canada. And it was top 10 in a few other countries. And then he went off to Stanford, management sciences and engineering with a concentration in data science. And when I came up with the initial idea for Surf, I was like, you know what? Like, I think he'll be the right person for this. Hmm. Um, and I decided to call him up and we decided to build it together. That's wicked. Yeah. Uh, okay. So in terms of growing from two people, mm-hmm. how did that play out in the beginning? Yeah, in the beginning, it was tough. I mean, we made it definitely some errors right away. Like, I think for me, I looked at a lot of my friends and were like, okay, CMO, CFO, uh, we'll figure out your role later, but you're an executive. And like, I just started handing out executive positions to friends of mine, you know, which is like a terrible way to go about it. But again, you know, 20 years old, had really no experience of building something successful at that point. Um, and so I felt, you know, like I wanted to build something with my friends and I wanted to get them to feel very committed to this. So I thought, okay, let me just give you a really good position and see how that goes. And obviously, you know, within the first four or five months, I quickly figured out, you know, who's actually committed, who actually wants to do this, who's actually passionate about this problem and who's not right and that was a big wake-up call for me then to be say you know okay do i wait do i give them another chance or do i just let them go and just part ways as friends hopefully Mm -hmm. and so the good thing that i did is i did part ways with a few people you know especially within the first six months to say hey it's not working out you know you and i are better off as friends let's just continue going down that path And, and that was really nice to be able to do that um what about money so how did this company Get funded. Yeah, I mean, so initially, you know, one of the things we did, which I thought was awesome, is that we went through and bootstrapped for the first six months, actually, just to get to the point of two LOIs, like letter of intent, as well as getting our visualization of our product built out on Envision, which, again, doesn't cost anything. It's a non-functional wireframe at the end of the day. And then also to be able to get early customer feedback, like testimonials. So the best thing that I think I did early on was just validate the idea in like the most feasible way possible. So that when I did put together a pitch deck to raise money, I wasn't just raising money off an idea. Mm. I was raising money off like, here's the idea. Here's how the idea looks like. Here's the feedback and testimonials we got. And by the way, we have two LOIs. Yeah. Right. It's a far more compelling pitch. So we were able to raise seven hundred fifty thousand dollars after six months. Um, we raised it from 24 angel investors. And the way I actually got these investors is through my background in college when I was interviewing people through my podcast and also through LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. So it's I the power of networking, power of networking. Literally, I was networking my ass off in my first and second year of college. And that network really helped later on when I built a business and said, OK, I need some people to put in a 10K check, a 25K check. I wasn't asking for 500K off one person. I was just getting small checks from individuals and putting that together into a round. Hmm. Yeah. 
And then, so you had some cash together to hire some people. Hire some people, yep. Hired uh, mainly within product, because um, that's, again, what we were kind of lacking. Um, I think on the marketing side, on sales, you know, we were we were pretty good. Like, you know, between me, my co-founder, as well as one of our other friends who joined early on, Scott, um, we were pretty good on that front. But we definitely needed to hire more engineers. So we exclusively used that money to hire engineers. We actually raised money from the founder of Hootsuite, Ryan. So we moved the company to Vancouver. Mm. And we started in Vancouver and we lived there for about a year and a half until Bruce Croxton from Round 13 Capital in Toronto said he wanted to put a check in and decided, you know, to move the company out to Toronto. And we've been here ever since. Wow. Yeah. Wait, this is all during the pandemic. No. So uh, this this would be 2018 when we started. Okay. Raised around in 2019. Bruce let us know late 2019 to come to Toronto. We come to Toronto late 2019. Amazing time, by the way. Raptors won. Oh, my God. Like, best time to move to Toronto. Or I guess move back because I was a college student here, but move back to Toronto was then. And then, yeah, pandemic hit and... Yeah, that sucked. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good time to double down on product development. Exactly. Like the amount of time I was spending on just being a on hand tactical CEO. Oh my god! Like I just, I just worked pretty much all day. Yeah. So uh, and then as you've grown your team and the engineering, mm-hmm. um, you know, side of it, how did hiring change? Because it yeah. sounded like at first it was kind of whoever's next to you, your friends, yeah, people around you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I started to do a little bit more of the hard work with hiring, which meant like actually doing multiple rounds of like, you know, like due diligence and evaluation. And the good thing is, again, I started building up quite a bit of a following on LinkedIn. So like it wasn't like we had like this lack of candidates, really. At the so end you of the like day. post on LinkedIn, yo, guys, oh, I yeah. need a senior engineer. And people are like, yo, there's five or, people. Or, or literally like we do like here a thousand dollars if you could recommend us to somebody who is a senior engineer. Right. And we get a ton That's of people. So interesting. Oh, yeah. People we are incentivized. Yeah. We know? did like a bounty type thing right away, you know, right away for especially a lot of these technical roles where we really wanted someone to vouch for that individual as well. We tried as much as possible to attach an incentive to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, first round was always either a technical interview, which meant, you know, Onik or my CTO and Andrew doing that interview. Um, our second round interview was typically going to be like more of a fit. Are you like a culture fit? And the third round interview was meeting the entire executive team. Mm-hmm. Like all five of us were going to be in front of you asking you questions. And it, typically that's a 15 minute kind of interview, but just to see how you, how you chat with the executive team, how you vibe with the executive team. Um, and I think that was really good because, yeah, it did slow down our process by maybe a week and a half. Like we weren't able to get an offer out until like two weeks after we first chatted with someone. But it meant that, you know, we did feel very confident about the people we were hiring. And even if it didn't work out, I didn't regret it. Like I had done the initial work to feel like, OK, this might be a fit, you know, and I, I decided to at least do that versus like, OK, I think I think you're fit. Let's go. <laughs> you know, like I, I would have hated to have done that and then regretted later on. Yeah. And keep like... The churn is not worth it if you can manage it. Exactly. Especially at a later stage, like especially where we're at now, I think, people do notice that as well. So what's your headcount now? 42 people. 42 people. So you've over doubled in the last two years. 13 people at the start of the pandemic. So yeah, wow, like kind of tripled. Um, So it's been pretty pretty incredible. Um, My role has shifted, I think, also throughout the pandemic, which has been nice. You know, like I think when I look at the start of the pandemic, I was really in charge of marketing. Like that was my main focus. Like I was CEO while also running the marketing team, which was like two other people. (laughs) And then I think, you know, throughout scaling the business now, obviously we have a dedicated head of marketing. Um, My role has really become fundraising, top line sales. And then honestly, what I call just finding alignment. 
like making sure that our executive team is aligned on what we need to get done for mm-hmm. a quarter or for a year, mm-hmm. right? And I'm the one, obviously, not only getting their input for quarterly goals and yearly goals, but I'm holding them accountable to it. That's become my job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and through this experience, the last couple of years, what's the uh, the update to the book? <laughs> I mean, the cool thing is actually the book was initially supposed to come out in 2020, which would have been basically like two years after I had started surf. And I don't feel like I actually was ready. Like when I, it was funny because the book got postponed because of the pandemic and we had to go and actually rewrite parts of it this year because we released it in May of 2022. Mm -hmm. And they were like, hey, well, there are a lot of sections in here that need to get updated because we're talking about 2020 and like you need to update it for 2022. And you also have weird predictions about like people working from home. Like obviously people are working from home now because of the pandemic. So like you just need to update it and add a section about pandemics. We didn't just do that. We just went through the entire book and updated the entire thing. Because there were some things that I wrote in the book that I just don't agree with anymore. There were like What's nuances. What's an example of, of that? I think, I think one of the things, candidly, is I, I wrote something which was like hire fast. <laughs> like, you know. And, fire fast. And fire fast. And that's like a myth, in my opinion. Like, I know a lot of people say it. But I would rather like hire slow and make sure you don't have to fire someone. You know, and like, like, yeah, give second chances. Obviously, I think the firing fast part is important because like you shouldn't, if somebody's not working out and you've given them multiple chances, you will need to pull the plug at some point. That is your job, right? But I don't agree with this idea of hiring fast. Like, I just don't agree, especially, you know, in the early days where every hire is going to make an impact to your team's culture, especially right. if you're five, 10 people where one rotten egg could fuck the entire thing up. I really think that you need to take your time in picking the people you surround yourself with. Yeah, it's true. Because it's kind of funny when you're building a business, especially at scale like that, mm-hmm. and you're capitalized and it's not bootstrap, mm-hmm. and everything um, relies on being able to lever yep. the collective. Yep. Uh, the collective is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, like, a lot of people think of, of businesses as, as kind of these, you know, widget factories and you're kind of like mm-hmm. you could be very functionally aligned with your with your hiring and your firing and putting people into the jobs but something that we're talking about on this podcast a lot with people is really about how culture and culture defines organizations mm-hmm. and it's so many founders especially in, in technology companies get started on the product market fit and the product evolution mm-hmm. uh, it's funny I've mentioned a couple times that like we as Startwell only got into media production as a skew right well multiple skews but as a business um because so many startups that pass through our doors wouldn't invest in marketing yep so the first stage of that for us was building out a podcast studio it has evolved into this wonderful Mm -hmm. place that is that we're sat in today and then we have a full-on stills in motion facility around the corner on niagara cool where companies like nick's shoot their catalog yep yep so that all came because the companies that were resident here that we were like peer-to-peer mentorship you know, putting them in offices together kind of thing, mm-hmm. early stage, 10 people, you know, outfits. Uh, they weren't thinking of marketing until maybe 100 people headcount. Mm. They were like sales, customer success, which really was customer retention. Yep. You know, like, let's fight to keep these people <laughs> to justify to the investors <laughs> that we actually have customers that yeah. they can yeah. buy into the next round. Yeah. And all the founders were running around like chickens with their head cut off, focusing yeah. on on all sorts of things that... That really took them away from uh, speaking with customers and developing these the, the, the network effect. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really interesting that like through this series, I'm looking at this and we're seeing the same problems in so many companies where um, culture is not really manifest mm. because conversations don't really happen. Mm. 
and everyone's so focused on like goal setting and accomplishing goals to move forward, to move forward, to move forward as uh, software companies, especially. Yep. That yeah, they don't look at that culture fit until you know founding teams, executive branch can breathe. Yep. And then they're like, wait. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. We got, we got too many people. Too many people. Too many of the wrong people. Yeah. No one's doing anything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No one's doing anything. Yeah. 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 And it happens. It, it happens. happens. It happens. And I, I, I think especially with the layoffs you're seeing off right now, I mean, it's just funny because people are making fun of like Twitter, for example, and like Elon's management and stuff. I actually think the first w- name basis. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Elon, <laughs> Elon, Mr. Musk. Sorry. I don't even know. Chief, chief twit officer. I don't know My what it's called. Second cousin, Elon. My second cousin. Oh God. Actually, pretty pretty cool cousin to have in my opinion. If you could invite them over for Thanksgiving, can you imagine? So, cousin Elon, how was your winter so far? Yeah, you're like, this is fun. I gotta leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bye. Uh, but I spent three and a half minutes here. Yeah, but one one of the things I actually think is really cool is if he can pull this off, it actually would make a really cool case for a lean startup. Like in the sense of you know he let go seventy five percent of Twitter's employees. And he's now trying to operate this business, a you know, multi-billion-dollar business. Still, if he could pull this off, I mean, it's a slap in the face to companies like Google, for example. You know, in the sense of yes, they have amazing culture, but do they actually need that many people to run their business? Okay, there's two sides of that coin. Mm-hmm. The context, of course, is we're talking about public companies. Correct. So there's problems with this discussion. It's a very loaded discussion because. You know, public companies, of course, are, are subject to shareholder mm-hmm. interest above all else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that, you know, the false notion that you can have exponential gains mm-hmm. as a constant reality. Mm-hmm. And then these companies do all sorts of dumb shit. Like, yeah. you know, they don't pay taxes anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, great. You're helping society. You're not paying any taxes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you're hiring so many people. So our governments are going to like, you know, rub, massage your back for you. Yeah. <laughs> And you white, you, whatever, you, you greenwash, I don't know what the phrase would be, but you basically run your money through, yeah. you know, some country that's going to turn a blind eye. Yeah. Personally, I think that's dumb shit. Yeah. And I think that everyone, like so many companies are, are are on the hook for this, you know, like we have a lot of societal issues, especially in a country like here where we could talk cavalierly about this. In the States, yeah. you can't talk about this because they don't really have social welfare. No, know? no. Uh, it's a difficult topic, but here, I mean, I kind of see an onus on corporations, any size of corporation, to kind of respect the public good. Same here, and realize that their staff um, and the the teams that create value at that company are part of a larger ecosystem. Mm. Companies should fit into an economy; they should mm. fit into a society. Mm. Uh, but we have a nouveau kind of what do you call it? This like corporate imperialism mm-hmm. that is, you know, unfortunately all over the world. Um, but so we're talking about this example is interesting for me because I look at, you know, Twitter and I say, okay, you're right. If it could run leaner, there's lessons. Yeah, there are lessons. But at the same time, you look at a company um, that there's so many examples of, of public companies that have kind of gone through this before uh, and tried to run lean and then had to like innovate through acquisitions, for mm-hmm, example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they're not relevant in five years or 10 years or 50 years. Yep. And uh, they don't have the talent pool internally to innovate mm-hmm. and to grow and to mm-hmm. stretch the brand. Mm-hmm. So there's different ways you could look at it. Yep. Twitter's a weird one because, like, do we really need Twitter? You know, it's one of those things that's like there's a lot of money yep. being thrown to bring it back even to your company. There's a lot of money. Uh, available for means of advertising to customers, right? Customer acquisition is an expensive proposition in the modern world. Yeah. So 
if the role of Twitter is to be an efficient way for advertisers to make money, mm. maybe at some point it's at odds with the mandate of the company, which is, you know, to provide uh, untethered or, or open access to audiences for users. Yeah, true. So if users are competing mm. with advertisers for market share, it's mm. fucked up. Right. This is the problem with the whole internet right now. Right, okay? right. I'm right. just going to call it all yeah, out. Yeah, right yeah. Now. <laughs> I'm going to go yeah. say it. <laughs> but like... When I got online in 1995, man, yeah, you know, the the web uh, was really a place where we saw democracy at work, mm -hmm. you know, and everyone was was really excited on the web uh, to not think of themselves as uh, consumers or creators. We mm -hmm. were all creators, mm -hmm. and even launching a website required a little bit of knowledge of HTML. Yep. Syntax is gone. You know, mm -hmm. no one knows about that. Mm -hmm. Code's writing code. Mm -hmm. And everyone's on these, like, you know, hyper-monetized social networks mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not even on the open web. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of interesting because I want to tie that back to, to what you're doing because uh, it kind of is interesting because it's relying on a web browser. Yeah. Yeah. Right now it is. Um, we are hoping to you know, be a little bit more independent going forward as well. Like we're going to have a mobile solution come out. Um, that'll come out on iOS in January, Android three months after that. It'll compensate you for your mobile browsing, mobile app usage data. The hope again... Oh, apps as well. Apps as well. But So the, the mandate is not to say, yeah. what is your profile, your identity, uh, your data outside of those walled gardens? No, because again, so many people aren't going to leave right now. At least that's my hope is like, you know, I, I just don't think people are going to leave them. They're too comfortable in them right now. But that's why our hope isn't to push you and create a whole new browsing experience for you yet. I mean, maybe that's something we do down the road. But for us, our goal right now is to compensate you for your current browsing experience, right? To compensate you for where you currently are comfortable. Let's make you even more comfortable with what you edit, what it is you're sharing every day. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no one ever thanks me for browsing. <laughs> Wait, now you get to now you get to actually earn something from your browsing. <laughs> it's super interesting. There's a lot of ways to skin that. Um, but I'm really interested in in, in kind of drilling down in uh, your culture, your organization, mm -hmm. the 40 plus people that work with the team. Mm -hmm. uh, how dispersed are they? Are they all in Toronto? All in Canada. So in fully Canada. remote team. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the sales and marketing team is here in Toronto, and a lot of our engineers are either in Vancouver or Kelowna, British Columbia. Do you get, or are you going to be, I mean, it's all new days, mm -hmm. but are you, are you planning for how there are in-person touch points? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So we are looking at kind of this hybrid model. I think everyone is really, but this hybrid model where we would have kind of, and we actually did this pre-pandemic. So we're probably just going to go back to it where we have desks at co-working spaces, right? So if you want that in-person kind of feel in, you know, accelerate Okanagan, or if you want to do it at let's say 111 Toronto, because we were at 111 before the pandemic, you know, you can go in on a Wednesday, Thursday, and you can interact with other team members that are there, but you don't have to. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a requirement because our culture is incredible when it comes to working remotely. We figured it out. And what I, tools do you guys rely on for communication outside I, of like yeah. code commits? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, I mean, we, we, the cool thing is a few things. Number one is we try to limit communication channels first and foremost, because I, I hate it when a company is like, well, we use Notion and we use Jira and we use Slack and we use Cohen and we use this and we use that and we use this Asana, Trello. I'm like, there's way too much going on. Like there's way too much going on. Right. And they're like all pigeons. We got pigeons. At the, at the same time, it's like, it's just, at the same way that consumers are getting 
over kind of whelmed and inundated by so many social media apps and all the communication happening there. The last thing I want is for my work to also look like that. So for us, everything goes through Slack from a kind of communication team perspective. Jira exists for the devs, obviously, and that's more of their working space, if you will. We have Notion for the sales and marketing team, which is honestly the Jira for you know the non-technical people, in my yeah, opinion. That's know. how I see it. Okay. Notion's great, though. They, they, they have the kind of the ability for you to like, you know, smarter Google Docs, basically. The ability for you to kind of work on these notes that are really easily changed and you can make them kind of your own and you can add video anywhere you want and you can make the video stretched out and look a certain way. And it's it's very creative. It's more for creative people than it is for Jira, which is like very kind of, you know, you're technical, you're a UX developer, you're front-end developer. You want to just look at all the tickets that are open mm-hmm. and what tickets you need to put up in that in that priority list. So those are the three main platforms we use. The things we do, however, is we do calls, right? So we have the Monday marketing, the Monday meeting, right? The Monday stand-up, if you will. It's called the sync-up that we do at the on the Mondays. We have stand-ups, what obviously. What do you do it on? On Google Hangouts. So we do that on Google Hangouts. So you don't use Slack for its inbuilt calling? No, we do that only if you want to call with another person right away. So if you want to directly call someone, which, by the way, like that's another rule that we have is like if you can always message someone, just message them. Don't call them, hmm. right? Like that's our thing. It's just message people because... If people are in a flow state, exactly. You don't want to break their flow state, right? So that's why even limiting calls has been one big priority of ours. Making sure that if you book a call, it's ideally 15 minutes. If you can justify that, that would be incredible. And you need to put the meeting agenda into the Cal invite. Hmm. Literally, I told people, like, if I ever send you a Cal invite and the agenda is not in the Cal invite, don't show up. the phone and be like, yo... Judy. Well, you could do that if you you, wanted. What you have for lunch? Yeah, you could do that if you wanted to, but just message them, right? Like, hey, can I quickly chat with you? Like, and and they'll let you know on their own time. Hey, right now it's not good. Three hours from now, let's book something in at 4 p.m. or whatever, right? And that's fine. But I don't like it when people just, you know, like, and this is something that happened to us two, three years ago is people would just randomly call me like on my phone or to Slack. And mm. I'd be like, no, 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 I don't want to talk to you right now. I'm sorry. Like I'm, I'm writing emails. I'm cranking through emails. I like love I when people call me. I love it when they call me and they're not in my calendar. Yeah. Especially if they offer me air duct cleaning services. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they don't even offer me anything. I don't even know what the hell they're offering. And I'm just like, okay, why are you calling me? But anyways, that that's one big priority we have. It's the 15 minute meetings. If you can try to message people, don't even book a meeting. And then, you know, another big thing we're trying to do as well is past the Monday meeting, we have a Friday call, obviously a team call. Every two weeks we do a Friday cheers where we play a game as a team. And along with that, every three weeks on a Thursday, we'll have a hopes and fear session. It's like a paranoia session where anybody in the company, whether you're an intern or an executive, could raise doubts and hopes that you have about the company. About the company, about not the about company. life. It could be about life too. I mean, during the pandemic, we had people share more personal stuff as well, which we're very open to. Yeah. But we do try to prioritize, okay, let's talk about the company first. Yeah. Like, what are things that you feel super hopeful about, excited about? What are things that you're anxious about, doubtful mm-hmm. about? And it's good because I'm writing all of these things down. And a lot of the department heads are writing these things down so they can then go book one-on-ones later. And actually have an agenda of like, okay, well, you mentioned this on the hopes and fear session. Do you want to talk more about it? Oh, that's cool. Right. I like that idea because it's kind Mm -hmm. of like you need to provide forum for critical feedback. And it's difficult in a way. It's difficult when it's in silos to start that conversation. Yep. Yep. Because there's a bit of a power play. Like, I don't want to really bitch out something. Yeah. yeah. But if it's all together, then there's no ego. And if the founders are leading the charge. 
right? Like early on when we did these sessions, candidly, it was really me and my co-founder talking for like 80% of the session because people didn't feel comfortable to be like, oh, can I actually shit on the company in front of the founders? <laughs> like, can I? But like when we're actively calling things out, right? And when other people They're are like, like yeah. I'm I'm afraid of this issue, and you're like I'm afraid you're gonna get fired. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that'd be terrifying. But no, I mean, we literally take any piece of feedback, you know. And again, the cool thing as well during the pandemic is when I was even sharing things that were more personal, right? Like you know, like parents going through a divorce while the pandemic is happening. I'm like, oh holy God, crap! No, no worries at all. But like stuff like that, like took a toll because I had no way to even get kind of my friends around me really like like i could have like one or two friends over but like i also didn't want to compromise a lot of them because they were seeing family members and stuff and i didn't want to like get them sick or anything and i don't want to get sick myself so that was really tough but then being able to go to my team and say hey guys i'm dealing with this and to have the team say yeah you know like this is how i dealt with my situation it opens up their feeling now that i can also share something like that yeah and it's kind of cool i think this is something i'm hearing from a bunch of people is you know the pandemic fucked up work-life balance in so many ways. 100%. Right? Yeah. And to go full on into supporting this idea that like, okay, you're all remote, we're all remote, but that also makes it difficult for us to turn off work and life. Mm. So setting these protocols for like notifications and making sure that people don't feel like stressed or anxious about, yep. you know, being on call for each other even. Mm. Um, maybe even set some of the tone to be able to like drop the guard when, when it's time to. Yeah. So that's good. And yeah. then have everyone be there for each other is important, right? Especially yeah. in early stage when you're founding something. Yeah. And you need to, again, depend on each other. And that's the number one reason why people don't leave companies is because of the bonds they've built in a company, mm-hmm. right? It's not the money at the end of the day, really. Like well, people, you hope it's not. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of times people leave for even money that's less or kind of an equivalent offer. But the reason they leave is because it's they're nice willing to, to cut away from the It's nice to hear that from a young bond. chap, you see? Yeah. Because there's so much fear right now uh, with attrition and churn mm-hmm. in so many different types of companies. Mm-hmm. It's, it's On one side, you've got all these like public stories of big tech companies culling. Yep. Also, one thing about that, a lot of the culling is a percentage of net gains yeah. in hiring from the last two years, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's that. It's Yeah, yeah. But regardless, <laughs> like with all that happening, you know, yeah. some people, of course, yeah, have fears about it. But but a lot of people that are telling us on the mic that um, as part of this series, that they're seeing a lot of uh, staff shopping around mm. constantly mm-hmm. and feeling a lot of times, I think you're right, because it, it, the, what I'm hearing is that a lot of the times the reason for that shopping around, partly it's money and increasing cost of living and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's as people are feeling withdrawn from their teams by being remote when maybe they weren't before, Yeah. Um, you know, they're kind of like saying, well, what's the difference between this company or another company? Yeah. I'm just a mercenary. Exactly. Especially if you're a high, you know, yeah. high-end engineer. Yeah. And you're going to go in and solve problems. Yep. We've heard this from someone recently that like, yep. if there's no more problems to solve yep. or if that adrenaline rush isn't there because they don't have peers at the organization, yeah. they just have underlings. Yep. Yep. Then they're not driven. Yeah. They feel like a contractor. They don't really feel like an employee of the company. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's cool to hear that from not only someone who's younger, but also someone who started a company as a remote first company. Yeah. Literally remote first company. So let's go back to this. What are you anticipating in terms of bringing people together in person? Yeah. So the goal is, you know, have this hybrid work environment where we probably in 2023 will make it mandatory to go into the office at least one day a week, at least one day a week. And the good thing is 
in Toronto or in Kelowna, people can go and decide what that day is going to be. You know, I think we're leaning towards Wednesdays because Wednesdays tend to be the middle of the week. It's always a good time to kind of rally up on how the start of the week went and how you want to end off strong. So we feel like, hey, Wednesdays is going to be the day where if you're in Toronto, you have to come into the office. The hump day surf. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's going to be our one day. And then I think past that, we're, we're definitely excited about doing a retreat. That's something I wanted to do pre-pandemic. Yeah. And I never got the chance to do it. Would and it I think be it'd go, be fun. Go to the beach or? or go to Kelowna. Kelowna. <laughs> I've never been to Kelowna. Most of our team members in Toronto haven't been there. I think it would suck, obviously, for the devs that are in Kelowna that are like, great. We're, <laughs> home. We're home. But it'll be fun because they could show us their city. Maybe we go to Tofino. Maybe we even go down to Vancouver. I don't know. But it'll be fun to do something in Canada, but do it out in the West, you know, in nature. Mm-hmm. That would be the, the goal. So I really want to do that. And then. Again, if you're looking for a pure in-person environment five days a week, you're not going to find that at our company. And that's why it has become a hiring question we ask as well. It's like, what is the ideal work environment for you? Is one of the first questions I asked during have my you, culture so fit interview. Have you found a, a number of people in those interviews say that they want no, in-person? No, wow. no. I, and I, maybe this is just, I'm like self-selection bias here in sure. terms of resumes and like also past experience and who we're like vetting and putting through the next stage. Right. But at the same time, I just find that most people like this hybrid work environment. I honestly haven't found a single person that I've come across saying, I only want to work in the office. Hmm. I've had a lot of people say, I miss the office and I would love to be able to go back there and like work a couple days a week. But I've never heard someone so far tell me I would only want to work in the office. Because there are obviously benefits to working from home. Yeah, of course. Especially on some days where you just don't wake up on the right side of the bed. Do you really want to get up? And like, especially if you have to drive in traffic to get into downtown Toronto. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, wait till you have kids. <laughs> That's like first world problems. It's like single people problems. Wake up on the wrong wake side. Wake up on of the bed. right you, side. You're not married. I'm not married. I actually, I don't have a girlfriend either. So I'm, I'm very happy about that then. Jeez. <laughs> then you'll discover the wrong side the of the wrong bed side is of the every bed. side of yeah. the bed. <laughs> up, down, left, right, down. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, though, man. That's cool to hear that, like, you're finding uh, people that are embracing this way of work and mm-hmm. they're, they're seemingly excited to, uh, to live it yep. and live through it. Yeah. Um, what is your take on, though you're hiring in Canada, people mm-hmm. going outside of our time zones yep. and like, hey, Swish, I want to live in Bolivia, man. Or I want to live in, maybe that's a bad example. But yeah, like, yeah. No, maybe not Bolivia. But yeah. Bhutan. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, we're fine with it. We had a few people uh, when the pandemic ended who wanted to go and they wanted to do like a Europe tour, or Asia tour, backpacking, stuff like that. And we were like, yeah, go for it. One thing too is we have a two-week mandatory vacation policy now. Because last year, I, I instituted a two-week minimum vacation policy, and most of our team members did not go on vacation. Yeah, people won't go because they try and bank it, yeah. or they're like, oh, it's not the right time. Right? But like now, it's two weeks mandatory. And I don't care. You don't have to go anywhere. Just two weeks, you have to take off. I see. Don't yeah. work. Don't work. We'll like, lock you out of our systems. Go play Fortnite. I don't care. Like Do something else, but you're not working for two weeks at least. You can decide when. Um, so we had a couple of people do that, and then they decided along with that to go travel around and Again, I mean, it's a virtual work environment. If you can make the hours work, if you want to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning, work till 2 p.m. and jump out and get along with your day, go for it. If you want to work at 8 p.m. and work until 5 a.m. and then go to bed and then wake up at 2 p.m. and have that afternoon to yourself to travel, go for it. What's your take on side hustles? I'm fine with that as well. Again, this is coming from a person who like I speak on the side, obviously, and I speak a lot about surf and data ownership. So it is complimentary. I've written a book, obviously. I post on social media. I have a Formula One podcast that I'm launching next year. Mm. I'm all for side hustles. You know, I love that. Um, The most important thing, though, is when I like a I want to see work and performance not hinder, obviously. 
but B, like, I want to make sure that people know that, you know, if possible, let's try to figure out a way to get your side hustle intertwined in the company. So what I mean by that is, you know, actually one of my employees is a guy named Ali Malik. He, you know, actually also, it's not technically dropped out, but I think he's taken years off school now. He's probably going to go back eventually, I think. But Ali started as a product intern. He's now a product owner at the company and he's launching a podcast. And the cool thing is when I, when he talked about the podcast, I was like, you know, you should run this by the team because I actually think there are a couple of other people that might be interested in joining. And he did that. And Sarah on our customer support team said, I want to be a co-host. Can I come on as a co-host? She's from London. She just moved and she is a perfect candidate. She has an incredible voice. She has a great background specifically within this niche as well that he's trying to build the podcast in. And so they decided to build it together. That's why it's like whatever way you can try to intertwine your side hustle into the company or let let people know. Don't be afraid to share it because mm-hmm. I know sometimes people are afraid to share what they're working on outside of work. Right. Try to share it. The, you know? uh, yeah, this came up yeah. uh, recently as well in a conversation that we had for the series where I was saying, um, imagine the value that can be generated if people use that kind of entrepreneurial zest for side hustles to add value to their job. You know, like so many people assume it's very, especially in large companies, Mm -hmm. you kind of get slotted into a functional role and then you kind of assume that, okay, you got to do this before you can do something else. Often cases, if you only did that something else, eventually you Mm -hmm. might actually benefit the organization far more. Yeah. And to have those compete against each other Mm -hmm. can be difficult. And I actually don't mind if employees run their own side business as well. Have you had anyone yet come to you and say, you know what? Swish, I'd rather do this for my job. Yeah. We like, had, like the thing that we're doing every day. I yeah. love this. I'm good at yeah. it, but I really, it's just killing me. I want to do yeah. this other thing. Yeah. I've had, there was a guy, Matt, who was on our team. He actually, so he just left like about a month and a half ago. He got a job at Apple and Apple's has been his dream company. He told this to us even during the hiring interview. He was like, you know, we asked him like, what is the dream company for you? And he said, Apple. Mm-hmm. And we were like, you know, it's great. And he got this incredible offer and we gave him all the best. We we're like, you know what? This is awesome. We actually looked at his offer letter even too, because we were like, let us take a look at your offer letter and like advise you on whether or not there's some things you should push back on you know and he trusted us to that point like me and my cto andrew because we have that sort of relationship with him um but but matt started out as a growth marketing intern he joined our marketing team and then i think a year and a half into running kind of a lot of performance marketing campaigns he was like you know what i'm good at this but it's not what i want to do what i want to really do is down product management i want to join andrew's team and i want to eventually be a product owner he had no technical background andrew looked at him interviewed him for the role, just like anybody else would, and decided to bring him onto that team. You know, and so we're fine with people moving departments. We don't want people doing it too often. Like if Matt later on, like a year and a half, you know, said, hey, I actually want to do customer support. I'd say yes, but, you know, really, really like make up your mind here because you can't be shuffling around that many times, especially because we're not a 500 person, a 5,000 person team. Um, but I do, I am fine with people coming in, realizing, Hey, I actually want to do something else and sticking with the company and just doing it internally. Totally fine with that. So, uh, what, uh, what do you think is coming up in the next couple of years for you guys? I mean, hopefully we're going to breach a million users. That's the hope by the end of next year, right? So we're at currently 250,000 users, um, started the, launched the extension eight months ago. You know, and we have about 50 data customers, Netflix, L'Oreal, Electronic Arts, HP, Amazon Prime Gaming. So the hope is to get to 100 customers by the end of next year. So 100 customers, over a million users, that would be the goal. We're currently as an extension available in Canada, the U.S., and the United Kingdom. We just launched in the U.K. two weeks ago. So our goal 
for the end of 2023 is to launch in six more regions. Spain, Italy, Portugal, the Philippines, India, Brazil. Those are the countries that make up the majority of our wait list. Mm. And we're hoping that, you know, other countries in the EU are quite enticing because of GDPR. You know, Italy, Spain, sorry, uh, Philippines, Brazil, and India are quite enticing just because of how big those markets are in scale. Um, And so we're excited to hopefully get a lot of our user growth just by that expansion as well. And then the final prong is the mobile solution, like I mentioned. That's it. Those are kind of the main priorities for us in in 2023. So in terms of of the team growth that you'll expect during that period? I I don't anticipate too much. I I think we've hired well enough. I think, if anything, the only hires we likely will make will be on the mobile development side because we have currently two mobile developers. We might need one or two more people, Mm -hmm. um, especially when it comes to Android, which is a totally different competency set, really, than than iOS, unless you're building something that's cross-native, which we aren't because it is a very kind of siloed project when it comes to ingesting data. It looks very different on Android and on, on, on iOS. And then the second would be sales. Right. And then again, all the sales hires we would make going forward are entirely revenue based. So, you know, we have specific milestones. If we hit those milestones, it'll unlock the ability to hire additional salespeople. Mm-hmm. But just like anybody else, I mean, I'm obviously worried, right? Like I'm I'm looking at, at kind of our revenue numbers and I feel good about our current burn. But I mean, obviously, you know, if this market downturn continues, like in seven, eight months, for example, goes by, yeah, we might need to make some changes. We might need to make some changes. Um, but obviously the hope is that A, you know, we get our kind of goals to the point where we need to be in order to unlock the next round. But B, I'm hoping the market downturn gets better in 12 to 14 months. That's the hope is that things don't continue to look like this, you know, 24 months out. Well, hopefully we're all in the same soup on that. Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy though. Like I, I, a lot of people ask me, they're like, Hey, you know, you started the business, like what a crazy time. I'm like, yeah. Cause like, I feel like I've really only had a year and a half of like normal environment to like build in. You know, like otherwise before the pandemic, you mean? yeah, like a year and a half, and then like the pandemic hit, and I had to learn how to build a company while going through the pandemic, which was already fairly new for me personally. And then I also had to now go through this market downturn. So I just genuinely feel like I have spent like 10, 15 years building surf <laughs> when it's only been like four years. <laughs> That's the crazy thing about entrepreneurship. It's kind of like the pandemic is almost an accelerator. Yeah. If it's one of your first experiences in building a business, because yep. fundamentally, you know, I think that old world of product market fit being everything mm-hmm. and having the biggest shop on the high street is gone. Yep. Especially in a digital economy or digital first economy. Yep. And especially where, you know, this convolution of reaching a customer Mm. um, because of competing factors and like users fighting for market share with advertisers and stuff Mm -hmm. um, makes it even more difficult. So if nothing else, it should be fun. The challenge should be fun. And I've learned way too much. Like I feel like I've gotten like an MBA just through the past four years. So I, I know that. You know, whatever it is that I come out of this experience learning, I definitely will be able to utilize that for another business or even just a side project that I want to build up. Like I just I've learned a lot even just about not only building something, but also like managing people, which was something I thought were kind of intertwined. But it's not like being a good entrepreneur and being a good manager is like two very separate things. Oh, for sure. Very separate things. Building an organization is is something definitely that requires focus and attention and Mm -hmm. an entrepreneur rarely can afford themselves that for that purpose. It feels slow Mm -hmm. and cumbersome and tiresome. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I'm quite certain that you'll continue sharing your story as you mm-hmm. go along, mm-hmm. and I'm looking forward to uh, the second book coming out yeah. oh, with these learnings. Not, not for a while, honestly, not for a while. I have way too much respect for full-time writers. That process was crazy, like way too much work, uh, but very rewarding because I feel like my kind of 18 to 24-year-old mindset is kind of stored within a book now, which is kind of cool. Like, hopefully when I'm in my mid-30s, mid-40s, mid-50s, I could look back and say, well, that's what that's what Swish thought. And hopefully I'll look back and think, that's an idiot. Because <laughs> I'm going to keep learning and hopefully get a bit smarter than too. <laughs> oh, it's an ever-going process. For yeah. Sure, yeah. Well, it was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank it you. It was an, honestly a pleasure chatting, and uh, I look forward to more conversations. Same here. Thanks, Thanks for, for having coming me. in, man. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you.